Welcome. This is an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. The topic is Using Mindfulness to Deal with Reactive Emotions, delivered by Brad Peterson, LMHC, during our Restoring Intimacy Conference in September 2015. Other recordings from that event are available on our website, www.healthyintimacy.net. Well, I appreciate uh, being able to be here. A good friend of mine, Kathy Shank, is on the board, and if you stay in this room, you'll be able to hear her next with her husband, Jeff. So it's a a privilege to be part of the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about uh, using mindfulness uh, to deal with reactive emotions. And this idea, and hopefully some of the practical ways in which this can be applied, will hopefully be applicable uh, to several uh, people groups, the ones that are represented here today. So I was curious, uh, when you're speaking to an audience, particularly live, it's nice to know who's in the room, uh, who I'm talking to. Uh, So I'm aware that there are therapists like myself or counselors of some sort that are here in the room. I'm also aware that there are clergy that were invited and uh, may be here today. I'm aware that there may be addicts who are either pre-recovery or beginning recovery or a long way in their recovery. And I'm also aware that there are, of course, spouses, loved ones, uh, those that are impacted by uh, the addict's choices and behaviors. I'm wondering, outside of those categories, if there's anyone here that would represent a different people group. Yes. A student. Okay, learning about counseling. Okay, and particularly addiction. Excellent. Any other students in here? Those that are learning this for further education besides those that are professionals? Okay, well, excellent. Welcome. Hope you learned a lot. Uh, So... Again, um, been in private practice at A New Life, uh, started that in 2005, been working professionally um, in the field of domestic violence intervention, uh, primarily since 2002, and then sexual addiction recovery uh, from about 2005 uh, um, up until this last year when I took on the full-time role at the church. have some exposure to mindfulness early on in my professional training, which was very helpful. Uh, in preparation for today's presentation, realizing that much of what I had learned back then that I didn't necessarily recall in like the prefront, prefrontal cortex up here, actually became part of what I did. So much of what you'll see today uh, is things that I've been practicing and implementing and incorporating into a lot of our treatment programs that we've offered over the years. Uh, didn't realize that it, a lot of it came from the mindfulness training and exposure that I had early on in my education. So a uh, lot of what we're going to be talking about today, you may just do naturally or intuitively. Uh, it may be part of what you already uh, practice or seek to practice when it comes to managing reactive emotions. Your own triggers, if you will, whether as a parent, whether as a, 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 in the workplace, a lot of what workplaces, parenting programs, uh, all those different kinds of things teach you, a lot of this is based, I believe, in, in kind of the history of mindfulness. Uh, the brochure and your descriptions talk about a little bit about, uh, we're going to go into what is mindfulness as well as uh, briefly on its origins and some of the latest research uh, specifically as it applies to mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and we'll get into that in a moment. 
But basically, if you're not familiar with mindfulness, if you're just walking in going, it sounds like an interesting term. It really means, the, the best definition I could find uh, actually comes from uh, John uh, Kabat-Zinn. Uh, you'll hear more about him and from him. But mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. Several of those terms were, were bolded by, uh, by himself there to, to bring our awareness to the fact that it's really about how you pay attention or how you respond to what's happening. A uh, little bit of the origins of mindfulness. Uh, Hinduism, uh, the longest standing uh, documented history of practicing this intentional awareness of what's happening to us or in our environment. Uh, dating back to the 1500 BC uh, eras. Taoism, a little bit uh, more recent, although very ancient, history with mindfulness. Buddhism, which is probably the one that we're most familiar with in, in our culture, which utilizes uh, the Japanese practice of Zen, Buddhism, and, and meditation. A lot of what mindfulness-based uh, therapy is based on is uh, really the, the Buddhist particular expression and practice of mindfulness. Christianity uh, in the uh, fifth or sixth century AD, uh, monasteries, uh, the, the ones where the monks were kind of by themselves in silence, began practicing mindfulness and incorporating that into the development of the early Christian church. Uh, during the dark ages, it was um, very prolific. In, uh, in the practice of Christianity. And, and then um, after Protestantism uh, occurred later on, the, uh, the practice of mindfulness kind of somewhat vanished or was pushed into just several sects. And, and mainline Protestant Christianity, um, I wouldn't say rejected it, but, but definitely didn't uh, promote it or, or teach it. But there's been a resurgence in, in recent years. Uh, mainly due to like the Pentecostal movement, things like that, about, you know, more experientially based Christian uh, experiences. Uh, so there's been kind of a resurgence in, in the Christian faith, if you will, an openness to mindfulness and its uh, integration with Christian and biblically-based meditation. Uh, Muslims, or Islam faith in the 9th century, followed by the Jewish in the 10th century. So you can see that um, all major religious groups have been affected and impact and utilize mindfulness as part of their tradition, as part of the application of, of truth as they see it. Um, in, in, in the last century, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy really began to develop um, under the gentleman that I referenced earlier. Uh, University of Massachusetts has an entire therapy program and outpatient uh, program that, that deals uh, exclusively mindfulness-based therapy. So a little bit uh, about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. It focuses on changing one's relationship to unwanted thoughts, feelings, and body sensations so that participants no longer try to avoid them or react to them automatically, but rather respond to them in an intentional and skillful matter or manner. Most of us are familiar, or a lot of uh, practitioners practice cognitive-based, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, I, I kind of taught myself as a cognitive behavioral therapist, because it makes sense to me. 
Um, it's also very uh, research-based, so evidence-based practice, uh, oftentimes uh, for insurance to pay, uh, particularly with uh, um, Medicare and, and, and various programs, they have to have evidence-based, and CBT is, is uh, legitimate enough as a treatment approach uh, to pass through any kind of screening. So CBT is very popular. CBT focuses on changing the content of individuals' negative thoughts in order to break the link between negative thoughts, negative emotions, and behavior. So we've all, how many of you are familiar with the term stinking thinking? Okay, it's a recovery-based term. Uh, cognitive distortions might be a little more uh, clinical way of describing it. Um, things like, that have become household terms like black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking. Um, may not be as common, but catastrophizing, uh, making a mountain out of a molehill. All these kinds of words that we, and expressions that we use to talk about how we relate to our feelings. Cognitive behavioral therapy focuses on looking at our feelings, examining them and saying, is that a valid feeling to have? I mean, are you making something out of something little? Are you minimizing? Are you denying? Are you rationalizing? Are you distorting your thoughts? And then how can you go back in and change your thoughts to get the outcome that you desire, or to become more reality-based. It's a very effective way of intervening in our thoughts. So if people are becoming suicidal, or people are acting out in addiction, to say, you know, is this really rational, and, and try to control those thoughts uh, to bring them into more of a reality-based uh, situation. So often this involves encouraging individuals to examine the evidence for to identify logical errors and to generate alternative thoughts and beliefs. So we replace unhealthy thinking with healthy thinking, and that's kind of how it works. Mindfulness therapy, a uh, bit different. Here's how. On the other hand, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy emphasizes acceptance of rather than control over one's thoughts and feelings. So relative to CBT, MBCT, more heavily emphasizes, and this is key, change in the relationship that people have with their thoughts and feelings rather than changing the content of thoughts and feelings. Because here's the reality that we live in, particularly when it relates to sexual addiction. And we learned about this this morning through some of the spouses and their recovery work. What happens when you think your husband is having an affair and you're having all kinds of heightened anxiety and, and hypervigilance, and you know, you can tell yourself, you're just overreacting, you have no reason to mistrust him, you know, he might be feeding into that. CBT would be great if you're thinking something that's not true to try to bring it into reality. What do you do when you're the unfortunate victim of finding out it actually is true? How will cognitive behavioral therapy help you besides thinking the right thing to do would be to Turn that wedding ring into a bullet. Um, so this is, this is a case where we can't alter the, the thoughts and feelings. They are accurate. They are real. There's nothing that we're doing to distort it. What do we do to keep from melting down? What do we do to keep making good choices for the health of ourselves, our families, even the addict themselves? How do you have a compassionate approach when you're just angry and hurt? as all get out. Um, so I believe that mindfulness-based therapy is a much better tool to utilize um, in that scenario particularly, as well as um, how it relates to the addict themselves and, and others. 
So hopefully that's clear, that the difference is not necessarily trying to change or control your thoughts and feelings, rather accepting them, things like it's rational to feel this way, anyone else would feel this way. And so having a little more self-compassion in the midst of the emotion versus I need to be happy, I need to be full of joy, I need to be forgiving, I need to be, you know, all these things. <clears throat> this is a, a saying that like I told you I came up with this not knowing why or how I came up with this. Um, but I tell all my clients, uh, some would, if they were here today, would tell you, yes, I've heard this many times. It's not our thoughts and feelings that tend to get us into trouble. It's our thoughts and feelings about our thoughts and feelings that do. And I thought I was, you know, B Buddha himself or the Dalai Lama, you know. Um, but come to find out, you know, that is basically the essence of mindfulness. Um, there is nothing new under the sun in terms of wisdom. We just all kind of borrow and share and redistribute. And then we put our logo on it, you know. But, uh, but that's basically the essence of mindfulness. It's not so much that you're feeling anxious. You may have good reason. It's not so much that you are feeling depressed. You may have good reason. It's what you add to that or how it compounds or snowballs, if you will, into further thinking and feelings that, that cause damage or further unhealth. So mindfulness, kind of the ABCs of mindfulness. And again, I cited Juliet Adams here. Uh, she's the uh, founder of uh, mindfulnet.org. Um, Juliet doesn't apparently know our alphabet. She starts out strong with A is for awareness, becoming more aware of what you are thinking and doing, what's going on in your mind and body. This is probably the most popular or most widespread understanding of mindfulness. Is it about awareness, what's happening? Uh, B is for just being, so we got to be there, with your experience. So rather than try to, again, change your experience, get rid of the negative feelings, stop being angry, quit being so sad, you practice the art or the discipline of simply being with your feeling for at least a moment, slowing down, accepting the fact that I feel angry, I feel enraged, I feel extremely sad. I feel, you know, whatever the feeling is, even if it's a negative feeling. Um, human nature, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, we avoid pain and we seek pleasure, right? Anybody here not identify with that phenomenon? If something's painful or difficult, we tend to go, ugh. And then if something's pleasurable and fun, we tend to go, great. Uh, how do you override that? Um, if, if the reality that you live in is not just pleasure, it involves some pain. Well, what they suggest here, or what mindfulness suggests, is just being with it. Uh, avoid the tendency to respond on autopilot. We all know about fight, flight, freeze. Um, there's also a lot of defensiveness, reaction. You know, we can go back to our family of origin uh, and, and look at a lot of that and try to override that because um, it can often feed to problems. Uh, let's see. So avoiding the tendency to respond on autopilot and feed problems. Uh, by creating your own story. So if you just be, you're not creating an outcome or a story um, or jumping ahead to the end of what good behavior might suggest for you. You're just first being there. C um, is for seeing things and responding more wisely by creating a gap between the experience and our reaction to it, we can make 
wiser choices. So this whole idea is like insert time gap here because we all are going to react to our emotions uh, in one way or the other. So the idea of mindfulness is to insert a pause. Uh, this is very effective and why I developed this over the years is working with domestic violence perpetrators. Uh, a, a vast majority of them, I would say, um, would, would tell you and have told me, it's not a premeditated event. Um, the victim often experiences it like, wow, they must have planned this. Um, but I, I believe, no, there, it's, it's a lack of an ability to insert time and good judgment. Um, it's, it's kind of a slavery, if you will, to what's happening emotionally and, and, a, and a lack of awareness and a lack of belief in oneself to override whatever they're feeling in the moment. Um, makes no difference to whoever's uh, experiencing those choices, uh, what's going on for the, the person that's, that's doing them. But for the person doing them, which is what we're focusing on here, is, is intervention. So again, creating a gap, the all-important gap. The Dalai Lama, when asked uh, what surprised him most about humanity, uh, he answered, man sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. Then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is never going to die and then dies having never, having, heh, having never really lived. A uh, pretty profound statement that it's, it's, it's alongside what we're talking about. is the idea of being present, of not missing out of making choices in the midst of what we might deem in our Western world as the rat race or the stress of life. Uh, many addicts that I work with uh, in sexual addiction recovery, uh, including my own recovery, um, is just slowing down, being aware, um, understanding the, what Stephanie so wonderfully presented this morning in terms of the brain chemistry, being more accepting of the fact that it just is what it is, and then making choices related to that versus being an Autobot or an autopilot. Um, and, and sadly, it can define uh, what I heard Stephanie Karn's father say. Um, it, it really defines our whole culture, is this sped up, not living in the moment, getting to the next thing, being distracted. How many of you are checking emails and texts even as I speak right now? Because it's just, we're, we're, we just, we're not present. That's not a slam, I didn't see anybody. I just know that it's probably common in our culture. The benefits of mindfulness. You might be asking, okay, well, what's the benefit? If I'm supposed to slow down or, or teach people to slow down, um, there are drastic benefits. Um, so it's a way of paying attention to and seeing clearly whatever is happening in our lives. And it's important to understand, and this is, you know, I, I said last night when I was talking about what I was going to be saying, I'm a Christian counselor presenting on, you know, Buddhist, uh, Zen, mindfulness. I said, I think Jesus and Buddha would have been good friends. Uh, because he talks a lot about these same concepts, that in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Buddha would say a lot of the same things, that it will not eliminate life's pressures, but it can help us respond to them in a calmer manner that benefits our heart, head, and body. You know, this kind of intervention can relate to those of us that are control freaks or a little more OCD or kind of have to have things a certain way. Um, you know, in an effort, if, if we're motivated by an effort to eliminate problems, to get our children to behave, to eradicate 
every threat of porn or um, you know, sexualized media in our, in our house or in our culture, um, this can become a very you know, consuming uh, drive, but it's not necessarily healthy to live that way. So the benefit is you don't have to live in that bondage to trying to fix everything and being distressed when it's not fixed. Mindfulness, uh, mindfulness benefits continued. Um, it allows us to recognize, slow down, or stop automatic and habitual reactions. Uh, I know for myself, for those that I work with, um, and I'm talking very universal if you haven't noticed, I'm including myself and, and each of us in the room. It's not just about addiction, it's not just about uh, those impacted by addiction, but it's, it's uh, universally beneficial to just slow down, to not have to react to situations, but have a response. So I'll, there's a book called Three Seconds. I don't know if you've heard of it, um, but the subtitle is The Difference Between a Reaction and a Response. And they were based on studies that if people just took three seconds to pause before they say or do something in, in response to a stimulus, um, the, the outcome is, is tremendously different. You have more control over what you say and do, and, uh, of course, we all have responsibility for what we say and do. The other benefits are respond more effectively to complex or difficult situations. So this is kind of an antithesis to that black and white thinking or all or nothing thinking. Um, but when we're, taking, we're talking about um, addiction and the impact of sexual addiction, it's, you know, it's easy to watch the news and go, that guy should be you know, castrated or they should be thrown in prison. It's a little different when it's your son or when it's your husband the father of your children, the one who makes the, uh, maybe a, a predominant amount of money in the home or something, and you say, well, just throw them in jail. Well, it's not, it's, see how it's not that easy. It's not that black and white. Um, so mindfulness comes uh, into great uh, value and effect when we practice it in these real-life situations. Uh, we see them more clearly. We become more creative. You know, it's not either or. Um, it can be both and or something else that we never thought of. Again, if we take time, if we're aware, if we think of alternatives. Um, lastly, but certainly not the, the very last, because this is not a comprehensive list, but we achieve balance and resilience in other areas of life. So if we're practicing this in our parenting, we're practicing this you know, with our own self-shame cycles, we're practicing this with those that have hurt us, um, we'll see the benefits in all areas of life, and I would argue because our brains actually change the way that we process um, emotion. So lots of benefits to mindfulness. Um, the other option, uh, when, when, I, when I work with clients, I often have a sheet of paper and I'll just write um, denial or suppression as one option. So you're feeling this way, but you could just deny it, suppress it, stuff it, pretend like it's not happening or it's not as bad as it is. Um, you know, how will that work for you? I kind of drop the Dr. Phil on them. Um, or if they have a history of suppressing or denying emotions, I ask them, how's that working? Um, you know, how's the, uh, you know, the blood pressure medication and the uh, ulcer medication working for you? Is this thing still on? Okay. Uh, the other is to problem solve to go external, to fix whatever it is that's causing the problem. Um, if I'm completely stressed out because there's just not enough money in the account and we keep going overdrafted and I hate paying $35 every time, you know, I buy a cup of coffee or something, um, 
one of the ways to eliminate that kind of stress is to what? Yeah, more money, right? Um, yeah, and, and adding to that would be, you know, more credit, uh, would be more stress, but, but to have more money. More money was in the account, stress goes down, problem solved. Um, so that's when we can fix it, by all means fix it. Uh, AA has, the, you know, the, the, the prayer of, uh, the serenity prayer that says, God grant me the courage to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So that second part there is change what you can. If you can change it, do it. If you're tired of feeling a certain way and you can do something about it, by all means, do it. But that first one, acceptance of things that I cannot change, um, that's where uh, it's, it gets real tricky. So I'm not in denial. I can't fix it or change it or control it. Then I'm left with the third option, which is coping. And that's where we go internal. That's when we have to tell ourselves something different about the situation that's before us. So we're not trying to sweep it under the rug. We're not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. We're saying, this is what we're dealing with. How do I deal with it best? Because I can't fix it, can't go back, can't change it. So that's kind of the, the, the three options. So looking at emotional suppression. How many know this guy? I don't understand these emotions, Captain. You know, he's just not emotion, denial. I, you know, emotions are, you know, he can conceive of them in his brain, uh, but feeling them is, is nearly impossible. Um, and so that's kind of one extreme. The person that just goes into denial, emotions aren't important, it's just, you know, facts, it's logical, it's uh, what you do. Um, we would say that Spock, although, you know, he was an endearing character for some reason, uh, he's not human, right? He's Vulcan. So you and I are not Vulcan, although there are people, I think, that are taking great lengths to become Vulcan, at least, you know, through some of the things I've seen on some of those uh, other conferences that are happening today. But um, he's, he's our model for emotional suppression. Uh, just because he's a male does not mean that females don't have the capacity to go into suppression, denial, um, putting up a, a false front. Um, and so um, the thing with, with Spock is apparently through uh, character development in the series, Gene Roddenberry enhanced his character to actually feel a lot of feelings. So you can see them there, a um, lot of display of emotion there in Spock. So he did eventually evolve. No, of course, he's not. He's, despite what may be going on, he doesn't change. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is to kind of be a reactor. What we talked about, mindfulness, whew, gone, right? Um, I knew Spock was a great emotional suppression. I mean, it's like he's built for, you know, being an illustration or something like this. So I had to look really hard. Who out there that we all may know of reacts emotionally without really pausing, without thinking it through, without taking into account consequences or even their own, you know, what they might look like in that situation. That's who I came up with. Okay. Um, good or bad, helpful or not. Um, loved the show growing up. Uh, but Lucy uh, would, would come up with all kinds of schemes, react, just impulsive to a T, you know, in, in, in her character. Hilarious, endearing again. Um, but 
a lot of people feel like I love Lucy, like Lucy Ricardo, like I'm, I just act and react without thinking. So we're trying to, again, mind about balance, um, you know, rational mind of Spock. Um, there we go. On one extreme, very useful, very helpful to think things through. On the other extreme, again, we have Lucy, who's acknowledging her feelings, how, you know, all of that. That's the emotional mind, and we're trying to find balance. We're trying to give credibility and honor, if you will, to our feelings, as well as have the best response possible without suppressing those feelings. Why is this important? Um, we all have a brain, right? Right. Okay, good, good. Just thought I was hoping I was in the right room. Uh, so we all have a brain, and we learned a lot about the brain in terms of addiction this morning. Um, one of the things we need to understand about our brains, we have this automated response system, uh, sometimes called the limbic system, and it's the here we go again. It's the trigger response that automatically goes into play based on what we've learned so far in life. So we just keep patching this thing and get, you know, version 7.1 and then 9.6 and then marriage point two, you know. Um, we just keep adding to how we react to situations. And it's automatic. It's how you guys all got here today in terms of if you drive a manual, you know, transmission um, or turned your blinkers or, you know, did what you did getting here. A lot of it was on automated response. You didn't have to think, you know, Oh, gosh, which first, you know, clutch? Oh, clutch, you know, unless you're just a beginner. So the, the very, you know, very complex skills uh, can be learned and, and, and put into our automated response system so we don't even have to think about it. And that's where mindfulness comes in is kind of a, let's bring this back up into the awareness. Let's make a habit or a discipline of always being mindful of what it is we're doing and why. So cognitive reappraisal is this, is this phrase that, that is used in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. It's defined as changing how one thinks about an emotional stimulus in order to change its emotional impact. And I'm no neuropsychologist. Um, don't even touch that, that phrase. So Stephanie Carnes and others are uh, much more advanced in that. Uh, but my understanding of it is that a very small part, if you take the total matter of our brain, is devoted to this automatic response system. We have all this other part of our brain that's wonderfully available at times to override what our impulse is telling us to do, which is good news, particularly if you're an addict, particularly if you're um, impacted by an addict's behavior, because everything in you wants to do stuff. And we all know maturity or becoming an adult is about you know, overriding some of those impulses. I've said before, you know, if every two-year-old had access to weapons, we'd all be dead. They just don't have that ability to override what's impulsive. So part of our progression as human beings is to develop the other parts of our brain. Um, sometimes I'll refer to them as like the, the accountants, kind of the nerds that are like, um, excuse me, um, before you do that, you might want to consider, you know, the impact of the finances and the emotional, you know, that, that part of our brain that's thinking about what we're doing so that these, these passionate decisions are lessened. So that's kind of what cognitive reappraisal is all about, again, in my understanding of it. So we have the ability to do this, and it's important to have the belief that even if our system stinks, if you will, or is weak, or hasn't, you know, we haven't built this up, 
in a particular area that we can. There is hope for being able to beef up or bolster um, our ability to do effective cognitive reappraisal. So how do we do this? Well, again, the MBT or MBCT clinic suggests these four steps. Number one is to, and these are actually A, B, C, D, for those of you that like that stuff like me. Um, number one is to acknowledge my feelings. This is what I talked about, avoiding denial. Um, and, and in this case, uh, like I said, this is kind of where the fork in the road, uh, where CBT may not be helpful or relevant. Because once I've eliminated thinking errors and distortions, I'm left with the reality of, of whatever it is that's happening um, in the moment. Um, we, we know this from grief and loss, you know, that you, you have to come to a point of acceptance that this is awful and it did happen. There's nothing you can do to change it. So you acknowledge that. Then you back away if needed. You avoid any and all impulsive decisions um, in, in intervention for domestic violence, anger management, those kinds of things. We talk about taking a time out. Again, inserting that time. Very important uh, intervention. Doesn't change the beliefs, doesn't change the impulses, but it can stop the behavior. And if that's all you're you know, trying to do at the beginning, that's, that's effective. Uh, a lot of bad decisions are made based on you know, emotional reactivity. So you're trying to get yourself separated from the situation so that you can consider the alternatives. Um, you avoid that here we go again ride of the limbic system. And you know, addicts can relate to this constantly. It's just like uh, Stephanie was mentioning this morning that you know, almost like in a trance driving around, not being aware of time, not being aware of, of a lot of things that you know, their senses would otherwise pick up, the good judgment that we do have. Um, so you want to avoid that. So you consider alternatives. Um, in this stage, I, I inserted, you know, find wisdom. Once you've acknowledged and you've, you've not decided to do something, like, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, it's, I'm going to divorce. Okay, well, that's certainly an option. Um, is that the best option for you at this time? Have you considered children? Have you considered financial impact? Have you considered timing of that? Have you considered other things? Um, but a lot of people will, will try to find, you know, some solace or hope or, 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 you know, some sense of purpose in something that may not be the best option. They may end up regretting uh, certain decisions later on. Um, so it's important to, to consider what your alternative is, are, and to decide then, again, with balanced mind, taking into account how you feel and the impact it's had, not minimizing or denying it, and then making a be the best decision possible. Um, this helps you to avoid a, a possible victim mentality. It allows one to take responsibility for everything they do. Um, I never met one perpetrator of domestic violence, which means someone who had been either convicted or arrested um, or accused of um, a crime against another person uh, of an intimate relationship um, without hearing their victim story. They truly believed in that moment they were a victim. It's the only reason why they justified acting out. And, and again, it doesn't matter for the person who truly is the victim, but it is important for that person to understand you're not a victim. You may have been hurt. That might have been hypersensitive. That might have been spot on. You needed to back away because anything you did at that point, you're accountable and responsible for. And you have choice. Uh, I, I put that across all of life that we always have a choice. 
You know, the two young football players recently that tackled the referee, you know, if you follow the, you know, pop culture news, you know, these boys are apparently, you know, saying, well, our coach told us to do it, you know, and, and not even acknowledging that it was wrong. Um, that's a victim mentality or a powerless position. None of us are powerless. Uh, we all have power over ourselves. So mindfulness really speaks to that, really empowers people to know what's going on and to try to make the best uh, choice possible. The uh, steps of freedom are eerily similar to the tenets, again, of kind of the Buddhist uh, practice of mindfulness. And it's real simple. First step is to observe, not to participate, not to try to stop or control what's happening. Then, again, you acknowledge without judgment so that you can return and exercise choice. So this thing just goes around. What's happening? Not going to do anything about it, just going to observe it. Going to acknowledge it, not going to shame myself. You shouldn't feel this way. A good husband or a good wife or a good parent would or should or do this. So you're eliminating that. You're simply saying, I have an urge to wring their neck right now. Not going to judge that. It's just is. I, really, I can see it in my head. There they are. I'm going, yep, I see it. Not going to judge myself. Someone else might feel that same way, and I probably wouldn't judge them either. So, once I acknowledge that, you can just sense, you know, if you've, if you've ever gone through this process yourself, one way or the other, um, you know what it feels like to just get all bound up because you can't do what you want to do, and you're all full of condemnation and judgment on yourself. Um, and, and then you know the other side of it if you've practiced, you know, any kind of self-compassion that says, you know what? Of course I feel this way. It's okay. Some of you have friends or you found a counselor that it's okay just to share those things with without judgment because you just want to get it out. Um, those of you that, that do read the Bible are, are familiar with uh, King David when he wrote his Psalms. Very honest, you know. Want them all dead. Want to kill them all. Um, and yet he would return, exercise choice um, to, to move back up. So, except for in the one case, which... If those of you who read your Bibles know that he got off this triangle at one point in his life. Um, so there, again, going back to the benefits, giving yourself some, some wiggle room, some margin, some grace, whatever you want to call it, again, allows you to make those decisions. And those decisions, as we all know, as parents, if you have parents, trying to communicate to your kid, I understand how you feel. I just don't care. No, sorry, no, that's, sorry, bad parenting. I understand how you feel. Honey, dear, sweetie, you're still responsible for what you do. I know you want to hit your little brother. I know you want to skip school. I know you want to date that boy or that girl. Um, but I, as a parent, care about you, care about the choices you're going to make and the way that those choices are going to impact your life. So I'm concerned for you. Would you please consider your choices? You have as much bandwidth as you need to feel and process what you need to feel. Well, that's what we need to internalize as good parents, if you will, to ourselves understanding that we have choices that we make, and those choices are our responsibility and no one else's. So this is huge in working with those that are in addiction or impacted by it. If you're a clergy member, um, this is great sermon stuff to incorporate into your teaching. If you're a counselor, this is obviously great stuff to move into your treatment plan. Talk about how are you doing, a scale of 1 to 10. Did you feel like you, know, you did well this week in terms of what we've been working on? 
trying to step back? Did you feel like you were impulsive? Did you feel like you made good choices? Um, so this is, this is very helpful, I believe. Um, this is, uh, again, just Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, um, this idea that it's our thoughts, you know, that, this is my, one of my favorite passages because it illustrates that there's a place in our brain that we can think about our thoughts. That's, it's an interesting concept for me. Um, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, in this case. So he's saying that we have the ability to think about what we're thinking and then to decide whether we arrest that sucker, put it in jail and throw away the key, or whether we let it out, roam the streets of our mind, and, and control what we do. Um, I like that. That gives me hope. But just because I think something doesn't mean that that defines who I am or what my values are or what I'm going to do. That we have power over what even we think, whatever comes naturally to us or habitually to us. Um, addicts are extremely hopeless uh, individuals um, when it comes to their thinking um, in, in terms of how they perceive themselves as people. It's like, oh no, I was doing so well, and then this thought, or then she or it came into my radar. I am powerless. Oh no, here I go again. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. You know, all that stuff. And it's scripted out time and time again. And again, if, if there's a spouse of, of someone, you know, it's like, I was doing so well, and then I got triggered, and now my whole day's ruined, and oh no, and this is, you know, who knows how long it's going to last. Um, to feel very powerless is, is a very difficult feeling. Um, again, if we feel powerless, we simply acknowledge we feel powerless, and then we decide, how long do I want to feel powerless, for instance? If I, if I you know, saw a, a text that I thought was from someone inappropriate, find out that it's not, what can I do to, you know, what am I going to do about that? Do I want it to ruin my whole day? Well, I got other things to do. You know, and you can start, again, using rational mind while ex accepting the fact that, of course, I feel triggered. Who wouldn't? So, again, it's not our thoughts and feelings that tend to get us into trouble. It's our thoughts and feelings about our thoughts and feelings that do. Okay. Going to give you a real simple, uh, this is the John Kabat-Zinn guy. Uh, so, one of their practices at the mindfulness-based uh, cognitive therapy school is just a simple exercise of starting with A to acknowledge what's happening. So you can now take a nap um, and check out, or if you'd like to participate, um, it's only going to be about five minutes, um, and just a very simple exercise that gets the ball rolling in terms of mindfulness. Some of you have done this before. Uh, some of you, this might be the first time. What we're going to try to do is deal with that second layer of thoughts and feelings. So what we're gonna, uh, we're gonna try to deal with that in the sense that we're gonna try to just ignore it or, or erase the noise that's around our thoughts and feelings. One of the easiest ways to do this is to not go to our emotions, but simply to our five senses, okay? So we have our sense of what? Taste, sight, scent, touch, and hearing. Okay, good. So, um, pending you have all those intact, if you don't, then you can skip that portion. 
Um, we're just going to simply go through the five senses um, and simply observe what it is that's happening in each of those senses. The goal is to try and get out of what you think about what you're hearing, seeing, tasting, you know, and, and or what you think about the thought that you're being told to, do, you know, and what's for dinner and what kind of popcorn, you know, all that kind of stuff. We have popcorn, by the way, this afternoon. Excited about that. But I'm going to try not to think about that. So just going to have you guys go through this exercise. I do this with the guys. I've taken actually men out to like a, uh, we had a, a field uh, in a park up from one of the treatment centers that I worked at. And, you know, here I'm walking down with all these, you know, DV offender guys. We're going to the park and we're just laying in the grass on a warm afternoon. I'm taking them through this exercise. It was interesting to, to I wish we had a video of the walk there and the walk back. Very different, just in terms of their body language, the tone of conversation. It was a very, you know, centering exercise. So you might enjoy this. Might make you miserable. Here we go. Okay. So let's start with sight, because that's our, probably our most acute sense. So I want you to try to just focus on what you see and just take into account some of the things that you may have seen without really seeing them. So start looking around and tell me out loud um, what you noticed in the last 30 seconds that you didn't notice before. What, what did you see? Great. So sight is, is probably one of the easiest ones to do. So what we're going to do is eliminate it, okay? So ladies, grab your purses, um, get them near, because we're going to close our eyes, okay? And uh, just going to ask you to now focus on uh, the next one, which is hearing. Just want us all to be quiet for a moment and just tell me what you hear. Yeah, how many of you were mindful of the air conditioner prior to this exercise, that you were aware, okay, about half the room. Okay, let's go to a difficult one, but we just had lunch, so it's a lot easier. Focus on what do you taste. This is an interesting one, and you can keep your eyes shut or open them if it helps uh, to focus, keep them closed. But feeling, just sitting there in your seat, start with your toes, Tell me what you feel. Go up your body or start at your top of your head and go down. What do you actually feel sensation-wise? What do we have left? Smell. That's an interesting one. You don't have to share out loud if you don't want to. Yeah, so again, thank you guys for participating. Um, that's just, you know, what, what I learned from doing that exercise for the first time was the awareness of how much I wasn't aware of what was happening around me. And, uh, it's, and this, so this exercise really starts with just the mindset that says, I wonder what's happening that I'm not aware of, which can lead to all kinds of discoveries. And, and it doesn't have to be this idea that, you know, there's pre-concluded, you know, there's, it's like your kid saying, there's nothing to watch on TV are you kidding me? You know, those are cable or satellites. Like, there's a million things. Or in our house, you know, we got stacks of DVDs, you know. Nothing here to watch. Um, so it's just, it's, we get in these mindsets, you know, that there are limits to our experiences um, because of 
the past. And so mindfulness really helps us just to start to explore and become, you know, curious even um, so that we can say, you know, I wonder how this is going to turn out. Um, I'll, I'll end here with the, at least my section here before we go to questions with a story of when this really became alive and personal for me. Um, and it was, it actually happened in a, a conversation with my wife who, who was here last night. She wasn't able to make it today. Uh, beautiful, wonderful woman. Um, we were lying in bed one evening um, and in one of our, what you'll, if you stay for Jeff and Kathy's conflict, you know, managing conflict uh, classes, Carol and I didn't have this class uh, at this point in our marriage. So I'm, I'm sitting there listening, uh, and this is, you know, expose time in terms of like, I admit this is not the right way to think. Um, but I'm, I'm, of, I'm aware that I'm thinking, are you kidding me? That's not true. You're misunderstanding me. Um, where did you get that? You know, so I you talk about judgment. I, everything she was saying, and it was, she just wanted to share her feelings. She knew that they could be irrational. She knew that it could be inaccurate or whatever. She just was trying to share with me her experience of something that we were fighting about. Who knows what it was? Um, and I'm just sitting there just getting more and more like, wow. And, and because of this kind of stuff, I challenged myself to just be there, not try to get rid of the feeling, not try to correct what I thought was distorted, not judging myself. And all of a sudden, literally like a visceral feeling came up in my stomach of just this knot of like, life's not fair, or I'm being misunderstood, which you don't have to psychoanalyze me. I already know where that comes from now. But, uh, but anyways, it was just this whole idea of, you know, she's hurting me by talking the way she is. And I just, and I felt this thing rise up, and I'm, you know, and I just, I just remember thinking, Brad, you don't have to do anything with this. Or better yet, I was actually thinking, I wonder where this feeling is coming from and how big it'll get and what will happen. I know better not to act on it. And then I remember thinking, I was listening at the same time, just so you know. Um, it was multitasking. I was listening to her, trying to understand where she was coming from, and also aware that I had this thing in my stomach. Then I became very aware I wonder if this is what some of the guys that I work with deal with and they don't know what to do and they're scared like I am of this feeling. They don't want it. They are trying to get rid of it. I wonder if they act out because the thought is, would you just shut up or would you quit talking or would you hear me or, you know, any of those impulses? I thought, oh my goodness, is this what these men are acting on or, or trying to avoid? So thank God. I mean, I, I didn't go there, but I just thought, I wonder how this is going to turn out. And this feeling came up, and it was like it was in my chest, and it hurt, and it felt nasty, and I didn't like it. And I just thought, I wonder if I'm going to explode. I don't know. Like, is my chest going to open up like an alien, and somebody's going to come out? I don't know. And I just sat there, and, and guess what happened? Eventually, it kind of dissolved, and she was done, and she even asked me. She said, aren't you going to say anything? Because usually I would say something or defend myself. I said, no, I think I'm just better off sleeping on this one. And So next morning, uh, she came to me and she said, wow, I, well, thank you for listening. And I'm sorry, I said a lot of things that I didn't really mean. And I was kind of being a brat. 
And then she looked at me and she goes, you took that like a man. The greatest compliment I've ever received from my wife um, is I thought, oh, that's what she needed. She needed me to be some, somebody who could control my reaction, you know, um, respond to her with a listening ear. And, and I took a learn, and I wanted to learn and understand what she had to say. I wish I could say I lived that way every day in all my relationships, um, but that's not true. But I do believe that that was an experience that has never left me. I keep going back to that to when I find myself, you know, wanting to, you know, I feel something in me. I would never have awareness of even that sensation if someone hadn't have sat me down and said, Brad, what are you feeling right now? What are you talking about? Well, no, what are you feeling right now? I don't know. I'm feeling, I guess, well, you seem angry. Well, I am angry. Okay, well, where do you feel that? What do you mean? Where do I feel it? Where in your body do you feel that feeling? Well, I guess it's, well, if I think about it, oh, yeah, there's kind of this thing. So been introduced to that process and was able to practice it in a situation that actually brought my wife and I closer together. Um, so it, again, using this, um, this training or these techniques um, is so important. And, and you know, the, the, the research that I did, uh, talked about this idea of worshiping mindfulness versus practicing mindfulness. And I would encourage you not to gain, you know, knowledge of mindfulness in order to stand in awe of it or teach it or, or you know, talk about it, um, but to actually practice it. That what the people that develop this want people to practice it and live it, not just learn about it. So with that, I'll open up for some questions. We have about eight, nine minutes. Well, like I said, there's, there's external and internal interventions. So um, the, the, what I mean by that is like you can either cope and do what you're trying to do, which is talk yourself out of it. But your reaction then is a behavior that is trying to fix the problem, right? So you're either going to yell or you're going to plead or you're going to beg or you're going to do something. So the idea is that's... That, that's not going to work either, so you remove yourself. So the only way to fix the problem is to prevent you from doing the behavior, which is external, which is get out of the room or get out of the conversation if you can safely. Just say, I need a time out. Um, or I, I don't have anything good to say, you know, back to what my mom said at least. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all. And that's hard. So it's impulse control at that point, which then, you know, hopefully we can have a little compassion for people that we judge how can you be so impulsive? You know, it's like, well, <laughs> same way you are right now, you know. <laughs> so it is, it is about, you know, I would say, and that's why I recommend timeouts, is get yourself out of that situation until you can build up that internal ability to take every thought captive. Does that yeah. help? Okay, yeah. Yeah, the main, you know, the, basically if you take the, the big <laughs> principles and boil them down, talk about validation of their feelings. So a lot of empathy, start with empathy. Oh, how to talk so your kids will listen, how to listen to your kids will talk. That's a great intro into empathic kind of communication. And then giving the choices and let them know they're responsible for their behavior. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Siegel has yes. several really good books, Parenting from the Inside Out. He has an awesome website also that's all his parenting stuff, little videos parents can watch. Yeah, what's really the well brain child or healthy brain child? Is that? Whole brain child. Whole brain yeah, and child. And he has a new book for t uh, teenagers and one for adolescents. He's got a bunch of new ones in the last couple of years. Yeah, and that one's fabulous. on my shelf. It needs to be read, but it's on my shelf. <laughs> so I'm one step ahead. Thanks. Daniel Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L. Parenting from the Inside Out was his first big parenting book. Okay, we're going to hear your question. Um, 
My question is, when you're on the receiving end of that um, explosive behavior, what, what, what can you do or what should you do to step back and to be able to help that person or even just to help yourself to be able to go through this mindfulness? Well, I mean, I think I would just, yeah, it's the ABC thing. I mean, it, it's, you, you're impacted by their behavior. I mean, they're going through their own cycle and either doing well or not. And then I would say, yeah, acknowledge what you're feeling, step back, don't judge yourself. I mean, I don't know how many people I've worked with, you know, women in particular that, that, you know, didn't call the police or didn't see the warning, you know, they, they didn't take the best step, make the best decision when they were in danger um, because of the, the other thoughts and noise and voices or, you know, a little devil on the shoulder or whatever you want to call it that was telling them things. And so I would just say, figure out what it is you're feeling, don't have judgment, make the best decision possible. Well, and I, I think in your ABCs, that step back can be either a mental or sometimes it needs to be a physical. Yeah. You know, uh, can you give us a minute? I need, or let's let's talk about this in five minutes, that type of actual physical space too. Yeah, yeah, the timeout. I mean, that's the hands down the, the tool that we use the most. So the goal of the exercise was to start with physical because most people can relate more to the physical than what's going on emotionally, but you're steps ahead and the, you can that. skip that step, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I would say it's, it's going to be for your relationship's sake, it's, it's going to be more beneficial to know what's going on on the inside anyways, and then, then apply these principles. Um, so the, the sensational exercise through the senses is more just to get used to it. And, and I'm aware too, like, I don't know how many would be in here that have like sensory disorders or, you know, you, like you wear particular clothing because you do feel it and it just, it feels horrible. So I, there's a spectrum there of even some of those things. You have been listening to an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. For more information or other recordings, please visit our website at www.healthyintimacy.net. Thank you for listening.